Luke, uh, it's fun to continue this conversation. We started uh, at Bible study last week. Uh, we were reading Colossians together and um, the word pleonexia came up and you were explaining it to me and I want to unpack that together. But before we do, I wanted to tell you what I was sharing about the world I'm in now with uh, family foundations, primarily people of faith, primarily Catholics, other deeply convicted people that believe in God and profess uh, a deep faith practice. And yet they're struggling with this question of inheriting significant wealth themselves in some cases, um, maybe a second or third generation family member. In other cases, they are uh, working for a foundation that, or they're a board member at a foundation or a voting member of a finance committee or a board or a grant-making committee at a larger family foundation where they continue to ask the question, my job is to steward this family's legacy. And my great-grandfather built this wealth. Uh, and my job is to steward it into perpetuity. And that is part of the statement in their thing. And so I, I often hear this refrain from these investment asset stewards to into perpetuity and in a kind of volatile market environment right now with the stock market um, crashing people very worried about the value of those assets. Uh, there's an increased focus on how do I preserve into perpetuity? And we try to ask the question about how do we bring our faith formation to this context? So I'm so delighted. Um, you're one of the most credentialed practical theologians I know um, that can speak to these questions. Um, so let's just begin with what are some scriptures that we can turn to? Maybe Colossians, maybe these other ones. Um, where should we dive in, Luke? So no, that's a great, I, I, I completely understand the, the, the kind of context. So just get just a couple of words before we get launched into some scriptures so i think there is this challenge of in a sense we've received from ancestors mm. a, a certain proportion to put it in very biblical terms there's, there's a portion we have received there's a birthright uh think of jacob esau you know there's a birthright we've received and then we as those who are inheritors or who are charged with stewarding want to be good ancestors to those who come after we we also through a process of responsible tending and stewarding want to hand on a, a portion in better better kind of state um, and while also ensure the inheritance we've received does good in the world so it seems to me that's the dynamic that's the ethical challenge uh the the relational challenge the situational challenge that that the, the folk you're confronted with. So I just wanted to name that. It's so good. And I think maybe just to add two more words to that is that they feel the good of their foundation is the philanthropy. And so to continue the the 5% of charitable giving that they give out each year, it does such important repair. Yep. It does yeah, such yeah, important yeah. healing work. Yep. And yet they believe they need the 5% plus the 3% for inflation so they need at least 8% if not nine. So they yep. need to make sure their returns are nine or 10% plus to yep. preserve the corpus. So they continue giving that if not to yep. grow the corpus to yep. get more. Yep. And in mission driven investing, we're trying to say, well, all these assets over here are maybe pursuing financial returns first in a way that is actually extractive and the beneficiary communities are benefiting to a degree, but they're actually not better off. It's actually worse off. And so yeah. there's a, a question with, we complexify a lot of the investment piece. And yeah. I don't think these people are understanding that, but yet still trying to preserve their fiduciary duty 
or yeah. they call it to perpetuity. So that's the yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no. So I think I think so that I think crouching at the door at that moment. So here, those are the good things. I should hand on the inheritance I've received. I want to be a good ancestor, and I'm trying to also use the portion I've received and some of the kind of profits from that to do good in the world. And so those, those are all good things. I want to affirm that, say amen to that. But crouching at the door, and scripture is very, very clean, clear on this, crouching at the door at that very moment are a number of temptations, which from the inside out, like a horrible kind of tapeworm, eat out the guts of the goodness and render it toxic, render the very thing we're doing toxic at that moment. And so I think there's, some, there's, there's a very ancient bit of wisdom which circulates around this word pleonexia. So the verse we were thinking of together, it comes from Colossians uh, 3 verse 5, and it, and it says, it's put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, i.e. not orientated to eternity, that is fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And the, the word for greed there is pleonexia. And it comes up repeatedly through the New Testament. And pleonexia is one of these very strong words in the ancient world. You find it in Aristotle and Plato. They're very concerned about it. And it gets taken up in the scholastic thought, particularly by Thomas Aquinas and others, and pleonexia isn't just greed or sometimes translated as covetousness. It's a particular vice, particularly vicious vice, associated with love and money. And, uh, and, and why it, the concern there in Aristotle and, and Plato, and, it, and it's exactly the parallel concern, as we'll see in a moment, in the New Testament, is that if you love money, uh, and it's not, and money obviously is good as a use of accounting, as a means of exchange for investment in trade and this kinds of things. But when you love money in, in the ancient world, it's called crematistics, making money, make money, which is the world now of investments. Um, when you love money above all else, then everything else is subordinated to the love of money. And in when you love money, rather than say for Plato and Aristotle, the good of the city or the common good, then uh, what it, what love of money or pleonexia does, it creates this rapacious desire, not simply for love of your own money, but the, for the love of everything and it's and turning everything into money or what in modern parlance we'd say commodification so even justice or for, for plato and aristotle even philosophy or for the scholastics even theology and love of god become commodified uh, so we can think of something like the prosperity gospel as an example of commodification of religion itself um, and, and Plato and Aristotle were very concerned about the sophists, and they were basically turning philosophy, love of philosophy, into a money-making exercise. And all the world, to, to someone in the grips of Cleonexia, this rapacious desire for, what, for more than you have, particularly orientated around love of money, because money knows no limits. You can always have more money. And so it's if you think about food, even the vices are so gluttony, there's a limit. I can only eat so much. I can't, I can only desire so much food or fine living. Even, even a yacht or my, you know, I want so many cars. 
there's a kind of limit to how many garage, however big my house, how many garage, how many I can stock in the garage or whatever. There's no limit to how much money you can have. You can always have more and you're always jealous of someone who has a little bit more and you can always feel you can get more. And then you very quickly desire, desire this is the rapacious bit and often Pleonexia was ex- associated with extortion. You start extorting uh, and, and literally, uh, hence to use the word rapacious, raping the world around you to get more and more and more and more and more money. And this is where we hit the New Testament kind of verses that, so if the prime- Yeah, I think some some of what happens is that the systems of begetting more money have been built up so strongly that that is just our dominant investment paradigm, yeah. that our whole yeah. investment infrastructure is geared toward that. Now, it's not rapacious, yeah. it's not extortionist in common parlance, but- Effectively, it's maximizing returns. It's, it's promising yeah. that your advisor will do everything they possibly can to make sure you get as much return as the markets will go up and down. They're going to prompt and you're going to evaluate them on their performance compared to others. And so yeah. as a steward, I'm just evaluating my outsourced chief investment officer to make sure they are performing on par with everyone else. But implicit in that is the rapacious part you just talked yeah. about yeah. because of how our systems have been set up. So, 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 yeah. so, so I would say the, so I've used very strong language. The I would say the kind of vanilla um, suburban version of that is this sense that money is the only metric for evaluating returns. So mm-hmm. when I'm, it's if we think of if I'm subordinating pursuit of commerce investment to some higher good, then mm. it's the higher good, love of God and neighbor. The, the the good of the city of Athens or Rome or wherever it is, that is then the dominant criteria under which the pursuit of money, investments, the making of money is subordinated. And this is where the New Testament comes in. Very, very, very I, I love that's the challenge for all of us that are faithful stewards of assets is to try to subordinate all of our investment management under this love of neighbor, under this love. So take us through the New Testament. Yeah, so so the New Testament, I think the New Testament comes in. So if we think the primary call, think De- Deuteronomy 6.5, repeated Mark 12.30. So the primary call upon us as Christians across all traditions is love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, and soul, or, you know, put in various ways. That is the primary good, the first commandment. That is That's the primary call. Seek first the kingdom of God is another variation of that. Now, the reverse, and and that sets up a a strong dichotomy. So we see in the temptation narratives um, in in kind of Matthew 4, uh, man cannot live by bread alone. Humans can't live by bread alone. We're not just material creatures. It's not just about inputs and outputs. It's not just about monetary or material returns. That can't be the purpose of investment. That cannot be the purpose of life if we are serving the human flourishing. Um, there has to be a, a, an extra, an excess, a plus, which is, in Christian terms, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and then loving neighbor, under which all, all the pursuit of all other things is subordinated. And we have this very then strong line uh, in, in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve two masters. Either you serve God or you serve mammon. Either your investments and your investment portfolio is serving God, or it makes a rather suburban vanilla version of Pleonexia, it makes money 
the only criteria of valuation, you're serving mammon, i.e. And so what does it mean to serve God and to have a vision of the use of money in the service of human flourishing? It's to serve extra non-material return ends. And, and this is central to Catholic social teaching. Human flourishing, we, and, and John Paul said tenemus annus, uh, goes back to rerum neverum, the origins of, of Catholic social teaching. Um, this sense of, of there's always this fight between ideologies, whether of the left or the right, which want to reduce the purpose and meaning of human life to the pursuit of purely material or economic goals. Uh, and that also applies for banking and investment. Um, and this sense then that if we're to be human and truly flourish as human and truly love God first and then our neighbor and then everything else following from that, because we're seeking first the kingdom of God, uh, then the, 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 the sense of we have to pursue those transcendent ends and order everything else in relation. So that has to be the primary criteria, the primary metric we evaluate our returns. And if we go back to the ancient, Plato and Aristotle's concern about pleonexia and why it was the enemy of justice is because justice requires reciprocity, giving what is due at the point of exchange or at the point of return. And so an imagination which says, I can make money over here in, in unjust ways that are pursuing money first rather than love of God or love of the city or love of neighbor, and then go and give it elsewhere is inherently unjust because justice involves, in our terms, paying a living wage, doing business in a way that actually fosters human flourishing. It's justice at the point of exchange not I make all my money in whatever way by any means necessary over here and then cause good outcomes somewhere else for other people elsewhere. That's not justice. Yeah, That's, that's to separate out genuine justice and reciprocity at the point of exchange and where the money is being made. And because if I'm not doing that where the money is being made, I've disconnected the pursuit of the good from the pursuit of making money. And so money has become, an, making money in, in and of itself has become the end rather than love of God or love of neighbor or the pursuit of justice. And so that disconnect, and that's, that's the temptation and seduction crouching at the door of, I think, philanthropy. It thinks that if I'm doing good over here in space, why? as long as I'm making a sufficient return, it doesn't matter how I'm making the money in space be. And, and that's, that is a fundamental misunderstanding. We have to have a holistic view of the pursuit of the transcendent end, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart and how that relates to love of your neighbor and then proportionate pursuit and subordinate all other things to that, to that end. And when we make money our primary criteria, or only criteria and profit maximization are only metric for how we make money and, and, and what we're trying to do with our investments and then disconnect that from what we do philanthropically, 
then obviously there is no end to that. We're seeking to make money in perpetuity rather than to love God for eternity. And that is a very profound distortion of what it means to be a Christian. And so it, 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 I completely understand the need to receive one's inheritance and pass it on and do good with what one has received, but it has to be at the point of exchange and of the making of money and where the making of money is subordinated to love of God and neighbour, not the pursuit of money for its own sake, which inherently will produce the vice of pleonexia. And like all vices, it's a seduction, which it means that we think we're doing good, even as we're doing evil. And that was that's precisely what's at stake for Jesus in the temptation narratives. Do good, the devil says. Take power and look at all the good you can do. Turn these stones into bread and look at how you can do a good thing. You can feed the hungry and the poor. You, and Jesus at every turn has to refuse that. He says, man cannot live by bread alone. Material returns, returns of power, the ability to do good in the world for its own sake. The, the ability to do good in the world will cause consequences from bad, the pursuit of bad ends, i.e. not loving God and neighbor first, will never produce good. It will always be a seduction of Satan who comes dressed as an angel of light and persuades us that crematistics and the vice of pleonixia is actually us doing good in the world through our philanthropic donation, when actually it's a little tapeworm that has emptied out the whole gesture because we're, we're putting money first as the only metric and not serving and loving, serving God and loving neighbor first. Thank you so much, Luke. It's it's so helpful to have you put it in such clear terms. Part of what I love so much about my work today is that we try to find business structures where the entrepreneurs, the investors, the workers are trying to subordinate the profit to this love of neighbor. So what does that solidarity look like? It looks like a different ownership or governance structure for a business where the people that are at the center aren't just the capital stakeholders are the workers, representatives of future generations, a trust structure that is represented by people that are thinking about three generations or seven generations down the line. And that's, to me, the most proximate example of how you love God, the city, the, the your neighbor in business and in investment. And there is increasingly those employee ownership is a whole world. Cooperatives are a whole world. Um, co-determination. There are so many fields of enterprises out there that are below the surface of the investment ecosystem because they aren't profit maximized seeking. So thank you for helping us see so clearly the tapeworm that exists. I wonder if you, to close here, might you just offer a little blessing to all of us who are in that deep consternation work of recognizing we have been good stewards or we thought we've been good stewards, but that tapeworm is right there crouching at the door like you described. And now we're coming to that awareness and we seek to do that deepening of our own faith and belief and trust that we can be that agent of change in our organizational context. Would you offer just a quick blessing to close us out? Yeah, let me let me let me pick up on a theme from the rest of Colossians, that that Colossians 3, 4, and 5 passages where Paul does too, because it's easy to hear what I've just said, and here is a word of condemnation. It's mm. actually a word of blessing. Mm. And in the rest of that letter, what Paul does is he makes truthfulness and forgiveness the anchor points of the new community that he's forming. 
and the conditions of forming a new community are truthfulness. We have to be able to tell the truth about ourselves and recognize how our investments are caught up in forms of pleonexia and all the rest of it and induce that in us. But also, we, we, it, there's this possibility of forgiveness, both to each other and from God. So new beginnings are possible. And we're always going to screw up. And we always need to be on this struggle to tell the truth about ourselves, the world we're living, and our life with God. So my blessing is this. May we be pursuers of truth and receive the forgiveness of God in each other so that new communities of shalom may flourish and be fostered through our investments and through our uses of money in wise ways that bring life, that bring blessing, and not curses. May all this be possible through the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Luke. Take care. Pleasure.